Hello, everyone, and welcome to Michigan State University's Liberal Arts Endeavor, a podcast dedicated to the transformative power of our faculty research and pedagogy here at MSU. In each episode of the Liberal Arts Endeavor, we offer an inside perspective on the research, teaching, and scholarship that are enriching the ways we think and act in a complex, interconnected world. I'm your host, Chris Long, Dean of the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. And in the studio today, we have the great pleasure of welcoming Kyle White, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Community Sustainability and the Timnick Chair in the Humanities here at Michigan State University. Welcome, Kyle. Great to be here, Dean Long. <laughs> well, I am thrilled to have you on the podcast. It's been, it's been a little bit of time that we've been doing the podcast, so it's, it's really wonderful to have you. Tell us a little bit about your, about your work. Yeah, great. Uh, so I primarily work uh, as an environmental philosopher. So I do humanities research on environmental issues, especially justice issues. So for example, people of color, indigenous people, uh, communities impacted by poverty often also face environmental problems more acutely than uh, more privileged people. And I'm a Potawatomi tribal member. And so the situation of indigenous people in terms of environmental problems is very important to me. And within the world of environmental justice, uh, I primarily work on climate change. And I've really tried to show that, uh, you know, indigenous people's intellectual traditions and our experiences bring tremendous insight about how we can address climate change and how we can address sustainability. And so I've worked across the science fields that deal with climate change. I've worked theoretically on how we understand this issue of climate justice, mm -hmm. which pertains to how actually indigenous people are among the populations potentially hardest hit from climate change. But then we also have generations of knowledge mm -hmm. of how a society can be sustainable that a lot of people in the world don't know about. And so centering indigenous voices is really a key aspect of what I do as a researcher. Can you give an example of uh, some of the work that you're doing here in Michigan or that, that does that kind of com combination of bringing in indigenous knowledge together with scientific knowledge? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've uh, uh, organized a number of workshops and events uh, here in Michigan, here in the Great Lakes region, uh, but also nationally where scientists and Native persons can actually come together and have frank conversations about how they can uh, work with each other. And oftentimes what comes out of those workshops is that people leave uh, understanding uh, differences and how people come to know the world that they might not have previously understood. So for example, a lot of scientists um, thought that, well, wait a minute, uh, indigenous knowledge is more than just uh, local information mm -hmm. about environmental change in a particular region, uh, but rather it's a kind of knowledge about people's values, about uh, people's understanding of what it means to live more harmoniously with the environment. And so as a philosopher, uh, a lot of what I do is actually get people in the room together mm -hmm. to have these 
philosophical conversations about how they come to know the environment and what that means for how we as people who live in Michigan and live in the Great Lakes region can work together more productively to make change. Yeah. In those conversations, where do you, you know, where do you see the, the, the challenges? And I mean, how do you get people talking to each other in a, in a genuine way? Yeah, that's a, a core issue that especially those of us within uh, indigenous philosophy and indigenous studies grapple with is so often people wouldn't uh, communicate genuinely with each other because especially indigenous persons were always asked to communicate uh, outside of their communities. They were mm -hmm. asked to come to a university. They're asked to go to a scientific institution. And so what we've tried to do is say, well, wait a minute. Um, as, as tribes, um, our communities are actually centers of knowledge and they're places where people can do research or have discussions uh, or teach. And so one of the approaches I've taken is that whenever um, I'm part of organizing a event like a dialogue or a philosophical discussion, uh, it's actually hosted by a tribe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it occurs on tribal lands. And so the people who aren't native who come, they have to learn that history. They have to appreciate you know, who we are as native people. And I think that context, you know, having a, a discussion in that context really changes uh, how people uh, approach each other and how they engage each other. Yeah, I think that that sense of place and being very intentional yes. about that is so important. I mean, that's one of the things that I've uh, learned from one of the many things I've, I've learned from you is um, how important it is to be intentional about the context, not the historical context, but also the sense of place and, and, and ensuring that we're recognizing the broader history in which we're implicated as we think about, you know, where we are. And that's right. One of the places that one of the um, things that you've helped me think about, I mean, a, a couple of years ago, Michael O'Rourke and I wrote a, an essay about for Inside Higher Education about the, uh, the importance of engaged philosophy in a, in a public land grant university like MSU. And um, you really helped us think about, well, what is this? The legacy of the land grant. What does that? What does that imply? Maybe you could talk a little bit about about some of that. I mean, here we are, MSU's campus, and um, that land is uh, traditional land uh, that was taken. Yeah, it's a it's a tough question, but it's one that actually is unfortunate that we don't have on a daily basis. Um, I mean, not just at MSU, but uh, everywhere. And what when I think about the land grant, you know. Uh, idea or the yeah. land-grant mission, uh, which at one level embodies this idea that academic work ought to be in service of the communities that can benefit from it. But if you look at the history of the land-grant universities, and I'm not going to go into a lot of the details just for reasons of time, mm. but there are multiple ways in which land-grant universities uh, were implicated directly in the dispossession of lands of indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And another aspect of this is the type of agricultural training that land-grant universities provided historically, but also to a certain degree uh, and in different ways uh, engage in today, um, doesn't really speak to the fact that indigenous people, we had our own agricultural traditions that were pretty good mm -hmm. uh, and that have many important lessons for today and actually should be practiced uh, more widely and people should have opportunities to be able to engage in farming and agriculture in that way. 
And indigenous people also, and this is something that I do talk about more directly in my work, mm -hmm. we actually have our own traditions of how quote unquote academic work should be accountable to communities. Mm. And so the idea that sort of the land grant movement was one of these times in which that idea sprouted, uh, it's not quite correct because for hundreds of years, indigenous traditions of science actually defined science itself as a practice of accountability. Mm. And I think that's a key thing that land grant universities need to take more seriously. So while I love the fact that this is a campus where it's not a problem to talk about our service to uh, the communities. Um, I do think there's a lot more that we can do to advance and uh, privilege indigenous traditions in conversation with the other traditions that are practiced here. Absolutely, we have the um, been thinking a lot about how we're identifying indicators of impact with respect to our engagement with the community more broadly. And, and so part of what you're helping me think about is, well, what are the tradition, what are traditional ways that that's been done? How can we actually take our cue from communities themselves with respect to you know, what they desire and what they need and, and what would be an important impact for them? So as I'm thinking about, you know, as we empower more faculty to do more participatory research, more research where we're crafting dialogues, reciprocal relationships, and real lasting, enduring relationships with communities where the problems themselves are being framed together in dialogue, we also have to think about, you know, measuring the impact of success according to what is valued by those communities. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one lesson from a lot of uh, indigenous traditions here in North America, including uh, Anishinaabe traditions, which um, you know, my tribe Potawatomi is part of the Anishinaabe group, and these are actually our uh, our, our homelands, um, is that uh, value and, and worth uh, in our traditions, uh, and this includes our, our knowledge traditions, our quote-unquote academic traditions, is actually about how much you can give and not about how much you accumulate mm. uh, or how much uh, uh, for lack of a better word, wealth is associated with you as an individual, but it's more about how much wealth you can demonstrably give to other people. And in academia, one of the tough discussions that a lot of people are having is that we don't get credit for the the gifting activities mm. that we do as professors, uh, meaning that when we do service for the field, uh, whether it's mentorship, whether it's recommendations, whether it's background support for people uh, to help their careers, those don't show up, we're not credited for it, even though our capacity to do so oftentimes arises from our research. And so those are all gifts that we're giving to people on a daily basis. But people oftentimes feel overburdened by the fact that you do that, but it's not considered part of your work. And you know, I'm really about uh, thinking about how indigenous traditions can uh, you know, instruct us about what it would mean to have a university where we actually valued people's gifts. Yeah, yeah. One of the other dimensions of uh, the indigenous traditions is the looking at things intergenerationally. Yeah, and I think that's the that's also a challenge as you think about sort of impact because sometimes the real impact of things is you know two, three, four generations out. Um, but I think having that long term perspective is really critical. Yeah, that's right. And one of the challenges that that I face is how to do academic work 
in a university context where you have these bizarre timelines, like, <laughs> you know, a PhD, that's supposed to take five years, right. uh, <laughs> a research project, that's supposed to take two years, or a degree is supposed to take, you know, undergraduate degree is to take four years. But is that necessarily the best way to think about time in relation to these important accomplishments that people are seeking when they study here or do research here. And oftentimes, because people become obsessed with those timelines, they ignore the ethical responsibilities they have to doing a good job in their work. And so I really like this idea of, you know, not only thinking about four years or, you know, the immediacy of my, my impact, but actually thinking very creatively about how the work we do today is going to have legacy beyond this generation. Well, and you've done that uh, in an amazing way in your own career. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how you've been in your own scholarship and your own thinking about your scholarship, um, charting a path that is both sort of attuned to the, you know, issues that we are facing in, in higher education around those constraints and those timelines, and also making sure that you're living up to those broader values that you've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've really uh, challenged myself to find ways to, you know, do things differently and in, in an academic career. Uh, and I've, I've had, uh, you know, due to leaders and, you know, colleagues like yourself, you know, I think good support to be able to uh, move in those directions. But, you know, a couple of things is that I've really devoted a lot of what I do um, to supporting uh, students um, especially tribal students, because I actually think that for someone here who studies at MSU, that this should be a vehicle for them to advance their careers working for tribes yeah. or working in Indian country or working on indigenous issues. And so I've tried to create programs and opportunities, especially my collaborations with the College of Menominee Nation, which mm -hmm. is a tribal college located at the uh, at the Menominee tribe, which is not too far from here, but across the across the big lake mm -hmm. <laughs> in what's currently called Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my work has impacted, uh, uh, a, I mean, well over, you know, 100 or, or more tribal students that are seeking to find pathways for them to have meaningful careers, but don't necessarily have a lot of options. And so I thought about my own experiences, not really having access to what it would mean to have uh, a career uh, as a Native person working on tribal issues uh, to create opportunities where somebody could actually have that experience. Right. Well, in your own you know, academic work, I mean, you, you, you do that work and you write about that work and that becomes part of your publication record, that becomes part of your, you know, more traditional metrics of, you know, scholarly quality and standard and reputation. And you've been able to do that with deeply, with, with, with being deeply rooted in your own values. And I think that's, that's a model for what we're really trying to empower faculty to do, think, think intentionally about what they care most deeply about in terms of their own values, and then live them out in practice. But there is a lot of work we have to do around ensuring that the institution is supporting that rather than um, forcing people to be alienated from their own values. And, and that's right. And in terms of this intergenerational issue, 
uh, you know, one of the things I've really been committed to do is that if I organize an event or a camp or another educational opportunity that's designed for uh, tribal students, that just by virtue of attending that, the relationship is not over. In fact, it's not even really about a relationship with me as an individual. Uh, rather, the idea is that by um, participating in a program like, for example, the Indigenous uh, Planning Summer Institute that uh, occurs every year at the College of Menominee Nation that actually uh, opens you up to a network yeah. of like-minded and supported people. And so a lot of the students I've had a chance to work with, whether they're MSU students or students from, you know, especially from tribal colleges, uh, is that once you're part of the network, it opens up so many opportunities. And oftentimes people attend uh, more than one event or more than one program. And it's been great now that um, it's been, you know, a few years since I've been doing this to see the careers that uh, come out of it. I mean, students that have done tremendous work in their own tribe, students have gone into higher education and are doing uh, fantastic work uh, in those contexts. Yeah. And you've been really generous about bringing students not only here to MSU, but also through the Public Philosophy Journal. You know, we've had writing workshops, and, and you're, you always have a student that you're bringing along, and, and, and that tightens the connection and the network more broadly. Uh, absolutely. And I think that's a key uh, uh, thing that we, uh, you know, need to do as, uh, you know, uh, academics is that this whole idea that it's the, you know, professorial adult that is the person that should be at a workshop or the person that should be the the lead author on a publication or you know I mean we've got to get rid of that and really see you know ourselves as always having an impact on younger people but also on on uh, older people as well that's part of what I think of as a set of not only ways of knowing but habits uh, and of knowing and, and, and mindfulness and um, ethical and intellectual habits that uh, tie into the work that you're doing. And I think one of the real values of, of engaging with indigenous communities is learning those kinds of, of habits of, of thinking and acting. So can you talk a little bit about some of those, th that aspect of, of your work? Well, one thing that you see, especially in Anishinaabe traditions, yeah. but there, I think, are other indigenous people that would be right there with us in this. But, like, we don't necessarily think that the the person with the the PhD is like the most knowledgeable in a situation, right? We think that you that that definitely is a type of of knowledge, mm -hmm. but actually, the knowledge that everybody brings, given it comes from their perspective, is important. So, for example. Uh, whenever I'm part of an event or whether um, I'm part of, you know, something in my department or, or just anything that happens, you know, say if a, a younger person who is maybe less experienced in a particular area uh, makes an observation, mm. like, why isn't this happening or uh, why isn't somebody mentioned this? You know, oftentimes, you know, especially academics, the, the, the tendency is to dismiss that person in their inexperience. But actually in a, in a situation where we're all thriving in our discussion, uh, somebody's observation that might come out of their being younger, their having less experience, can oftentimes point out things that uh, uh, 
you know, we take for granted those of us who have been doing something for a while. And I think in a lot of our traditions, if a younger person uh, would say something, uh, the, the idea wouldn't be, oh, is, is that true or false? But where is that coming from? Mm. Why are they saying that? What are they noticing that we might be taking for granted? Right. One of the things that has been a real challenge for us here at Michigan State over the last year or so has been uh, our response to the survivor impact statements and um, the, Nash, the Nasser uh, sexual abuse scandal. And, you know, early on in that, um, early, soon after the survivor impact statements were um, made known to us as we were experiencing them in last January, um, you know, you and I talked about, you know, how to how to respond. What what would what would be a kind of ethical response at an institutional level? Maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the things that you've done in the philosophy department, because I think what you're talking about with respect to your own um, scholarly experience really positioned you well to lead some pretty transformative and important um, conversations there. Yeah, and thanks for um, you know kind of bringing up the opportunity to. Uh, address this issue given how important it is to our campus and especially given, you know, that the work is not nearly <laughs> over it's at all. Just starting. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I think in, in conversations like this, we, we have to uh, talk about it and we're going to be talking about it well into the future. Mm-hmm. You know, in the, the philosophy department uh, here in the College of Arts and Letters, you know, I think a lot of students and faculty, um, you know, for years had been concerned about the way that academia is organized. It's a way that breeds uh, distrust. It's a way that breeds privilege and power. Um, and it's a way that actually breeds uh, silencing uh, of people. And the philosophy department has done, uh, uh, you know, a number of different uh, activities. Uh, and it's not really the type of thing that uh, there's like a, a spokesperson for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I can kind of speak just as a, an individual uh, faculty member uh, that uh, I was really uh, just, you know, you know, impressed by how students in our department, you know, especially graduate students um, came forward with ideas with concerns for how our department could become a safer place. And this idea that you don't have to have a scandal, a public scandal for you to work to make a a safe environment. And then I was impressed with the fact that a lot of the leaders and senior faculty in our department were receptive to that. And so um, I've been part of a number of meetings, conversations, uh, formal policy changes uh, in the department, which are all steps toward this effort to uh, make the department as safe of a place as possible for for everybody, especially those who are not in positions of privilege. And I'm very committed in my career to this idea that... um, you don't have to be the dean (laughs) or you don't have to be the department chair to be a leader on campus. You can be a student, you can be a faculty member. And so I've really tried to do my part in collaboration with my colleagues 
to step up to be somebody that would organize meetings. And a lot of my colleagues have reciprocated with that same uh, energy and have put in tremendous efforts to find ways to make change. And what I think is important is that, you know, like we mentioned earlier, the work is not even close to done, but I'm in a lot of conversations where people share with me directly what their concerns are. Mm -hmm. You know, they might think, well, this one meeting we may have had, there were good things about it, but I still think there's a lot of distrust, or I still think there's not enough accountability. And the fact that it's becoming more likely for people to say those things is key. And the last thing I wanted to say about um, uh, this, unless you had other questions too about it, is that um, we actually did make, um, we made some policy changes in the, the department, um, you know, in terms of committing to, to workshop activities, in terms of uh, uh, committing to uh, 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 different formal policies, um, and the follow through has been happening. Yeah. So in the, in the wake of the survivor impact statements, you know, I, I, I went to you, I went to the, the, the chairs and, um, and to the faculty, the faculty that I trusted that I knew um, would be able to help, you know, me as a, as a leader trying to find a, a pathway through this, you know, having been at Penn State uh, and having lived through the Sandusky uh, abuse crisis and then being here at Michigan State you know, I was processing my own kind of sense of, okay, you know, what is, what's going on here? And, and I think you, you pointed to it earlier when you when we talked about the, the toxic culture and, and the ways in which when we lose sight of our values as, in, as people and as institutions, we perpetuate, you know, structures that uh, can enable abuse. And when people uh, take advantage of their power and their um, authority to, to do things um, and others are not able to speak up, to take care of one another, to do the things that they need to do, there's a, that's a symptom of a broader, a broader problem, a broader uh, cultural problem that we have in higher education. So it's not just about you know, Penn State or Michigan State or USC or Right? It's happening in all kinds of ways. And the, the work that you've done and the, one of the key things that I've learned from you and you've helped me see is the importance of living out those values in intentional ways. So one of the things you talked about in, in terms of what you're doing with the philosophy department that was, has been continued to come back to me in, since you talked about it was you know, trying to create a culture of consent in the unit. And that means that, you know, as decisions are thought about, that there's a real back and forth. And I've really been um, grateful for, you know, the work that you've done to help me learn that. Because, you know, you and I have been back, we, we wanted to tell the story of the philosophy department early on. We wanted to talk about it in the dean's report and other things. And, and you rightly said, okay, well, wait a minute. The important thing is that the unit be able to m make its pathway here and to build the trust that will be lasting l much longer than the story that we could tell it. And I, that was a really important uh, moment for me. And I'm, you know, grateful that you were, a that we were able to really have that conversation and you felt able to say, okay, you know, we have a process here and this is, I'm going to have to bring this back to the unit and we're going to have to have uh, people say, yes, we're, we're open to doing this. 
Yeah, and I'm I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, you know, and and that's part of the reason why I sort of mentioned that it's not really a process that yet uh, you know kind of has a spokesperson. Right. Uh, but again, kind of from my just individual perspective as a faculty member that participated in a number of different events uh, and activities, and I continually actually learn this uh, is that you know in higher ed, but in other areas too, you know, there's this idea that, you know, if you, if you change a policy or if you move forward with a program that, that that affects the kind of, uh, change that you want, but without actually building trust, without actually building accountability, without actually building a expectation that you consent to decisions that are made about Mm -hmm. you, I don't really think that change occurs. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the people in my department would, uh, agree with this, that uh, the way that I think that some of the um, activities um, unfolded was that if there was like one person who had a concern and they expressed it, you know, confidentially or or openly, then that would make us reconsider as a department whether we should move forward in a particular way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so in this way, you know, I I don't want to be in a department that has you know, a thousand programs or has a thousand policies. Um, but I want to be in a department where people feel that there's trust, people feel that there's consent. The, the, the critical part of that to understand, which is something that you had just expressed, is that these relationships take time yeah. to develop. Yeah. There's no shortcuts to right. that. Right. There's other types of relationships that have shortcuts, <laughs> right? But these are not among those. Yeah. I think that's critical to remember because the time that you've taken to nurture those relationships, um, I know those meetings are long. They are sometimes very fraught. There's a vulnerability there that's sometimes difficult to navigate. There's an intentionality and awareness of power dynamics in in hierarchical structures that um, complicate things. But that work, as you as you look back now, a little over a year ago, um, you know it, it it's taking root, and I mean it's slow, and it's because it's a growth process, but it's uh, it's taking it's taking root. So that look, look, when you look back at it now, what seemed like really slow work, actually you've you've done an enormous amount. I mean we were talking about the consultants that you've had and they came up with a report about some of the values that you're, you know, emerging as really important to the department, um, the community, you know, the internal community to philosophy lecture, you know, uh, is is starting to happen and that's going to be built into the, into the habits of the uh, department. Um, Those things are going to endure. I mean, I think that's the, the other side of the fact that this takes time on the front end is that the change endorse? Yeah, and f- you know, f- follow through is uh, you know extremely yeah. important, and just from my own experiences and all sorts of other contexts, you know, I find that that's one of the biggest uh, challenges for for leaders. Uh, and so, you know, in terms of like our department chair and you know other leaders in the department, you know, I've been kind of heartened by the fact that they they are attempting to follow through and they're continuing to bring up these issues of safety and community building in 
the department meetings and in the department communications. And so just to keep that follow through happening is a key part. Because again, going back to kind of some of the points you raised about about timelines and how academia works, you know, we're, we're so often attuned to this idea that once my particular job ends, once I step down as a leader, once I, you know, take a different type of job in mm-hmm. the university, that then the follow through is not needed. Right, right. You know. Well, and I think that, that, that when you take this values-based, relationship-based approach that you've talked about, not only in this case with regard to working with the department, but also in your own scholarship. I mean, you're talking about nurturing networks of community support s- systems. Those, those things do endure after your activity as a, a person, you know, actively, directly involved in that um, steps back. You know, you, you, you've started things that, you know, are going on and other kinds of connections are being made, you know, beyond that, even though you're not directly now working on certain projects. And I think that's the real indicator that uh, transformative change has happened. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I think uh, something that I come back to is that, you know, we can also focus on some of the things that maybe markers and situations where students have been successful as, you know, indicative of certain types of solutions. So, uh, uh, you know, I've been obviously doing a lot of research, learning more about, well, what types of academic context make make it more possible for people to be be vulnerable, to be harassed, to be bullied. And, you know, one of those things is kind of this obsession in a lot of academic institutions that a student uh, must, like, you know, be under one single advisor mm. that has this huge determinative role uh, mm. in their futures. And at least for the graduate students that are involved with my work, especially in our uh, environmental philosophy and ethics graduate concentration, uh, a lot of them have gone on after graduation to have just really fantastic high impact careers, I mean, even just a few years after graduating. When I think actually about the experience they had uh, that they didn't really, I mean, there was one formal advisor on paper, but there were several faculty that they had very close relationships with. And I even remember cases, and I think it worked in all different directions, where uh, if there was a bit of a you know issue, a small issue with one of the relationships, they had another faculty that could help, that could mediate, mm-hmm. that could, you know, uh, create a better situation again. And it's those types of success stories, I think, where a student can come away and say, well, wait a minute, I had like four right. amazing advisors. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you you touched on it uh, earlier on in our conversation about taking a real student-centered approach. To yeah. When you go back to what the student needs, uh, be it a graduate student, undergraduate, and we as, a, as a, a group of faculty members, staff members as a community say, okay, we're really focused on ensuring that the student has an amazing experience and is successful and is supported through the pathway that they are on. I mean, we have this amazing privilege to, with our undergraduates, have these four years where they're trying to figure out who they are. And with our graduate students, you know, who are they going to be with their intellectual life? And, um, you know, if we see that, if people see that as an opportunity to impose their, you know, legacy on those students, we get the kinds of 
toxicity that we've been, we've been talking about. Well, when you see it as nurturing a network of support for students and making sure that they have places to go and, and, and support along the way, it's, it's amazingly transformative for them. I think that's right. And, you know, I've talked about this with some of my colleagues that, you know, I think oftentimes we get caught up in the single notion of what, uh, of what tenure and, uh, you know, academic security means. Um, you know, for me, when I received tenure here at MSU, um, what that meant to me is that I could really focus on my own giving and the fact that, you know, uh, I can support somebody tirelessly in their career, and they don't actually owe me anything for that. And I can just watch their success. If they'd like to keep in touch, they can. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they don't have to. I can just do what I really enjoy, which is empowering my colleagues, which is empowering students, and then seeing what they do. And I think that's an environment that is important to try to create. And so often in academia, you know, we get caught up in issues of, you know, how hard it is sometimes to find a, a job, um, you know, how difficult it is to create a research career. And I think at least the colleagues that I work with in the department, um, we've truly really tried to bring positivity, planning, goal setting for the students and support them in their efforts to do something that they feel passionate about. And at least with the students that are sort of in my network uh, in relation to the philosophy department, but other departments on campus, uh, they've really done fantastic in terms of the unfolding of their careers, precisely because I think they felt empowered to do what they were most passionate about. But you need a department that is behind that. Right. I mean, and, and we need we need institutions, we need structures that, su that support that. I mean, we're losing people because we're asking them to to, as a as a price for entering academia, they have to alienate themselves from their deepest values and who they are and what they care most deeply about. And that that just can't be. That 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 is part of why we have the kind of toxic toxicity that's in in the system. And what you're talking about also has me thinking about you know we've, we 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 talk so much about the the challenges around institutions and the and the ways in which they perpetuate you know, un unjust structures and systems and the ways in which, um, you know, some of those inequities are just baked into the, into the institutional structure. But there's, the, what you're talking about is the uh, possibility of, you know, nurturing kind of institutions that are, that have habits of care, habits of support, habits of, um, of, of uh, enabling and empowering growth, which, of course, you know that all institutions of higher education do that to some degree, but we really need to think more about how are we cultivating those institutional habits that advance that kind of work. Yeah, I think that's right. And this was an area that I realized was related to a lot of the research that I do on indigenous intellectual traditions. Uh, and really the last couple of years have you know, solidified this more in my mind. Uh, but, you know, in a lot of the traditions of how we think about institutions and how we teach people about institutions and politics in higher education, you know, we focus on very formal types of 
uh, aspects of morality like rights or yeah. contracts or property. Right. Um, and while those things all have a, a role to play, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I, I really say in indigenous traditions, uh, at least for Anishinaabe people, but I, I, again, I think a lot of other indigenous people identify with this. Um, we were very much more focused on what it meant to have ethical day-to-day -day interactions with people and how a moral society, a society that has justice, is actually one where um, people maintain certain types of bonds with each other mm -hmm. that are actually uh, enacted every single day. And so this is why, you know, I've tried to argue that in a lot of indigenous traditions, instead of sort of focusing on something like a, a right or, you know, uh, you know, or, or, or something like how private property is distributed, you know, we were very much focused on like consent and mm. reciprocity and trust and accountability. Yeah. And we're very much cognizant of the idea that because we live in a complicated world, where things happen to us that we don't always choose, mm. that that was actually part of what it means to be a moral person is to constantly grapple with our responsibility within huge institutions, within environmental systems that do things that are unpredictable, that do things that we might not have wanted. But nonetheless, we have to take seriously our responsibility yeah. uh, to be good people, uh, despite how complex things might be. Yeah, that Anishinaabe tradition of being attuned to the individual, the people that you're encountering in the context in which you're encountering them on a daily basis is, I think, the key to the work that you've been doing in the philosophy department and, and what we've been trying to talk about in the in the college through the culture of care initiative. And, and you know, as we think about, okay, you know, how are we interacting with one another in the hallways, in meetings, so that people feel supported in coming to work? I mean, that's the only way people are gonna be able to do the best work that they have and, and, and bring the most insight and the most creativity and imagination is if they're not feeling like they're fighting, you know, just to survive or just to have, a, you know, space to breathe. Yeah, and that's been, I think, really key in my experiences with the, 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 the philosophy department is, you know, just ensuring that everything we do just avoids that tendency to think that, you know, like success has been achieved. I mean, going back to something that you had mentioned earlier that, you know, on the one hand, we can look at processes to address things like safety um, and see that there are changes that have occurred, right? But the minute we start thinking that issues that may occur in a professional environment have sort of been capped off or that uh, because somebody hasn't brought something to our attention that it must be over, mm -hmm. right? People think, oh, if, if, if we took action to address something and then nobody's brought that issue to our attention again, it must have been solved. In fact, that's actually maybe a sign that it really hasn't been solved yet. <laughs> I right. think that, um, you know, as a, a you know a senior member of a, uh, the department, you know, I, I don't think I'm ever going to be in a situation where I, you know, especially in relation to students and people who don't have the same privileges that I do. I mean, I'm never going to be in a situation where, you know, I can say that uh, the 
power relations that I have with others are, you know, in, in, in a good spot. I mean, until the power relations change, we constantly have to be putting ourselves in check yeah. and open to the fact that we might be failing whether we intend to or not. Yeah. Yeah. And th that humility, that uh, ability to be self-reflective and, and not to feel like that when somebody brings uh, to your attention your shortcoming or something you didn't see or recognize or something hurtful that you said, that that does not, you know, send you into a, a fit of self-defensiveness, right. but actually opens you to um, a real conversation that might make the space more welcoming, more comfortable for, for, for more people. And that work is every day. It is... Um, in every encounter we have, and that, and, and that's one of the things I've been thinking a lot about over the last year and a half in terms of how do you embody those habits of self-reflection and intentional practice around exactly the kind of interactions you're talking about. We don't associate that with, you know, at the academic world, the world of, you know, scholarship, but from, from my perspective, that's the condition for the possibility of genuine creativity and imaginative scholarship. Yeah, and I really hope to see, uh, you know, those attitudes and values and practices, you know, being things that are just widely practiced. Yes. So, well, I want to end by thanking you because gratitude is such an important practice as well. So thank you, Kyle, not only for being on the podcast, but for all the work that you do here at Michigan State and, and more broadly. Um, you're really a model for the kind of scholarship that is transformative for communities, and um, I'm really grateful for the work you've done. Great. So a big thank you for everyone here in the studio today. You can follow more of Kyle's work, teaching and research on his website at kylewhite.cal.msu.edu and on Twitter at Kyle Powys White, and that's K-Y-L-E-P-O-W-Y-S-W-H-Y-T-E. So follow him on Twitter. And lastly, I'd like to thank those involved with the Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast, including our technical producer, Dan Trago, and our marketing director and producer, Ryan Kilcoin. And of course, you can access all of Michigan State University's College of Arts and Letters Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast at go.cal.msu.edu slash podcast. I'm Chris Long, and I'll see you next time on MSU's Liberal Arts Endeavor.